My name is Marlon. Welcome to my podcast. You can find a blog post that accompanies this message on prmarlon.com. That's P-R-M-A-R-L-O-N dot C-O-M. May God bless you. With all that in mind, let's transition to the study this morning. This is part three of our series, God With Us. And I would like to invite you, if you scripture reading, there we go, we're back to John chapter 14, and we're going to jump back at that here in a little bit. But in God With Us part one, and if you missed any of these, you can find them on our YouTube channel. God With Us part one, we talked about creation and how from the very beginning, there is evidence in the biblical text of God's desire to be with us, especially in the seventh day of creation, when he pauses everything and says, hey, let's spend some quality time together. And then God with us part two, we talked about how Jesus was born to be here with us, to walk with us, to live with us, and then to die for us. And he did not stay dead, he rose again. That was the last message that we covered. Once again, it's on YouTube. And there's, um, I have my blog posts and notes on that. And now we're coming to part three, God with us and the fact that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming again. He loves us so much. It was not enough to create us. He loves us so much. It was not enough to spend about 30 years living here with us, dying for, for us, coming back from the dead. And he's coming again because he wants to be with us. And we're going to be exploring that this morning. Once again, just a reminder, I do have a blog post. It's going to be up in a few, um, in about an hour. And so if you want to go back and look over the, the notes and links to things that I mentioned and some other details that sometimes I, I skip over for the sake of time, you want a more in-depth experience, you can check out my blog and I'll have those notes on there. And I'll also have um, some, uh, the audio recorded afterwards. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. But before we read, I'd just like to pray one more time. Father, as we open the Bible to study it, and as we look at the second coming of Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would touch our hearts, that you would speak to us and teach us what you would have us learn from your word this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. It's almost like a man, right? Don't allow your heart to be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places, houses, homes, places for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now listen to this in verse 3. says, if I go... And prepare a place for you. For sure, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. To me, that sounds like a God who wants to be with us. It's not just the Christmas story. It's not just the birth of Jesus. It's the overarching theme of the Bible. God's desire to be with us. God chasing after us. God sends prophets God creates God sent his son and he's not done he's coming back and this is something that we look forward to but it's so interesting because you know there's there's a book in the bible 
that talks more about the second coming than any other book in the Bible. It's the very last book of the Bible. And in English, we call it the book of Revelation. That name comes from the very first verse in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus. And in Portuguese and in Spanish, those are the two languages that I know, but there might be others. The name of the last book of the Bible really is taken from the Greek, the Greek Apocalypsis. Right? The Apocalypsis is just the Greek meaning reveal or uncover. And it's interesting because in English, right, the transliteration, you take those letters, you change them into English characters, and it's the Apocalypse. If you look up the Apocalypse, something like this comes up. And isn't that interesting? You know, there's, there's a whole genre of books, movies, video games, you know, the post-apocalyptic world. And, and I looked this up, post-apocalyptic, according to the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary, it defines it as existing or occurring after the catastrophically destructive disaster or apocalypse. So, catastrophic disaster or apocalypse, except the apocalypse means revelation, an unveiling, a revelation of Jesus. Somehow that word, which is supposed to be telling us more about God and who he is, has become synonymous with destruction. And what happens? People are terrified of the apocalypse, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, something that should give us hope and joy it becomes something that terrifies us because we think nuclear holocaust or zombies. You know, it's really interesting when you put zombies and apocalypse together. It's like the revelation of zombies. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But it's a thing. It has been hijacked and transformed into this other thing which causes so many people to be afraid of prophecy, afraid of the second coming of Jesus because it's the end of time. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be scary. It's going to be terrifying. And meanwhile, it's supposed to be about Jesus, a revelation of what he is like, of his desire to be with us. But it has become this scary thing. And it's so, so odd because when I read the Bible, for example, Titus chapter 2, verses... 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, and looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from the very lawless deeds and purify us for him. Uh, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So the Bible describes it as a blessed hope, as a glorious appearing. But somehow it has become this scary thing that people are afraid of talking about. We love to talk about, well, I love to talk about the creation story. It revealed God's power and his love and, and his care for us. We love to talk about the birth of Jesus. You know, Jesus, meek and mild, born as a baby. We, we weep at the idea of Jesus dying on the cross. But we shy away about talking about him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. 
But it's interesting, when you go to the book of Acts, and if you turn there with me, the book of Acts in the New Testament, right from the get-go, well, the book starts with Jesus going up into heaven, and I'd like to pick it up, the story from there. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 9. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 9. Now when he, talking about Jesus, had spoken these things, while they, the disciples, those who followed Jesus, who were there, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now listen to this part. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So I'd like to propose to you this morning that the second coming of Jesus, the fact that just like he went up into the clouds, he's going to come back in the clouds, is the main driving force for the whole book of Acts. Everything that disciples do, that Jesus' followers go and accomplish, is an expectation of his return. That's the main factor. What motivates them to go is that they long to see Jesus come again. And they want to let as many people as possible know the good news. In Revelation, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead with myself. Um, there is, Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. I have this one up on the screen. It says, and there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea, the waves roaring, men's hearts failing from them for fear of the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 29, then they will see the son of man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now these things, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. So here's my theory on all of this. If you look at the news, which I don't recommend, it's very depressing. I've, I've cut down on it and I realized that without that knowledge, I've been able to function just fine in society. Turns out a lot of the things they're talking about, there's nothing I can do about it. And if I know it or not know it, it doesn't really change the day. But when I do listen to it, it causes anxiety and all kinds of issues. But when these things begin to happen, according to the Bible, we look up to the sky because our redemption draws near, right? It gives us hope. In light of everything going wrong, and if you're concerned about all the issues, let me tell there's plenty of issues happening globally right now to concern you. There's lots of ways that life could get really complicated, really hard, real quick. But instead of focusing on that, we can think Jesus is coming again. He said that these things would happen, and it shifts our focus from despair to hope. And then based on that hope, how should I live my life? What kind of decisions should I make? How should I look? As I look at 2023 coming around the corner, where should my emphasis be? Instead of, being, instead of reacting and making decisions based on fear of the unknowns and the things that could go wrong, what if I focus on God and He's coming again and what He has called me to do as I eagerly await for that day? See, there's, 
there's a silver lining. There is a positive way of looking at this. And this idea of Jesus coming again, it's, it's something the disciples were aware of. It's something that Jesus talked about. And it's something that the book of Revelation also repeats quite often. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they that pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So it sounds sad that, you know, people are going to be mourning because of him. He's coming. But yet it ends with even so, amen. Even if people are going to mourn, I want you to come. Now, let me put this into context. John is writing the book of Revelation. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. Pretty much all the other disciples are dead at this point. And they didn't get to die comfortable deaths. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about it, but from just uh, historical in tradition, we hear about some pretty gruesome ways and painful ways of dying. The early church is being actively persecuted by the Roman government. In light of all of this, they're looking forward to Jesus coming again. Yes, things will get bad, but if things have to get a little bit worse before they get better, they welcome it because it wasn't great. I think what has changed is because we now live well, at least us right here, right? We, we live in a wonderful nation and we have the freedom to come together and worship and life as a Christian has become quite comfortable. So if the idea that the second coming, for Jesus to come again, I have to become uncomfortable, suddenly I'm like, well, no rush. You know, I have access to food. I have access to shelter. I'll be okay. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's no hurry. Meanwhile, in places where Christians are being persecuted, where deciding to follow Jesus means putting your life on the line, which is the context that John is writing to when he's writing Revelation, like, man, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. May he come soon because things are bad. You know, there's something about these texts mentioning Jesus coming back in the clouds, and it's specific language that's used. It's very careful language, and this is related to, I believe, and I didn't realize this until I was working on this message, Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 13, there's this prophecy, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought before him, and they brought him near, sorry, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory in the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. When I read this, finally it clicked. Every time Jesus uses this specific language, and it's used again in Revelation, to the Jewish mind, it brings them back to the prophecy of Daniel to what they were expecting Jesus to do or the Messiah the first time around. They're waiting for the Messiah to do this. Jesus didn't do this the first time around. He's coming back to do this the second time. So this is connecting prophecy and the Messiah. Yes, this is the one you're waiting for. No, he didn't do it that time. He's coming back to take care of this. So the second coming, instead of focusing on the negative things, the, the natural disasters and the political persecution and all these things that will happen, the lack of freedom, the, the wickedness of the human heart. What if we focus on this is finally when Jesus establishes his kingdom. This will be the end of all this oppression and suffering and, and crying and sorrow and pain. It'll be an end to all of this. In, in, a, in a very 
it's a terrible analogy, but it's, it's the best that I got because I, I just haven't been through some other things. But it, it's like when one of my children gets a splinter on their finger. I remember one time we were going, to, we lived just a few hours away from the beach and we were in South Georgia. We would drive three hours to Florida, have access to the beach, spend the weekend. And my kids were walking through the boardwalk and running their hands along the side. And that's that, you know, wood that's just exposed to things. It's just bam. No, just several different splinters on their fingers. Now, it's not the first time that this happens. It happens so often as a matter of, now not so much, but I carry with me like a splinter removal kit. Like I have these tweezers, they're metal and they just dig in there. And, and I felt terrible. My kids were very young at the time. And I remember people around us just staring, thinking like I'm breaking my kids' fingers, but I'm just trying to pull out these little splinters. And they're like, ah, ah, ah. and I'm trying to pull it out because if I leave it on there, it's just going to be painful for a long time. And I'm going to have to take it out anyway. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes, but it'll feel much better later. So I know it's a terrible analogy, but in my mind, like if Jesus has to come and it means an end of losing loved ones to war and to famine and to cancer and diseases and, and mindless car accidents and, and shootings, if it's going to mean an end to all of that, I'm like, pull the band-aid. Like it's going to get bad, yes, but it's getting bad slowly anyway. It's not like things are that great. So I'm like, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come soon, even if it will cause mourning, even if it will be uncomfortable, if there are scary aspects of it, yes, but something better comes after it, and I'm all for that. I'm all for the coming of Jesus, and I look forward to that, and I think it's something that's worth talking about. Let's not stop at the baby on the manger. Let's not stop at Jesus on the cross. I don't even want to stop at Resurrection Sunday. I want to keep going to when he comes again. Let's finish out the story. There's more good news coming. Don't get sidetracked by the scary part. Focus on the good part. I think it, it's like when you're, you know, practicing a sport and practice is grueling and it's painful and you come home and you're sore and you're miserable. But you know what? Winning the championship, getting to perform at your best, it's worth it. It's rewarding. And I think that waiting for Jesus, yes, there's difficult aspects of it, but it's so worth it. You know, in, in Matthew chapter um, 24, verse 30, it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Remember that quote from Daniel. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together the elect from the four winds uh, from one end of the earth to the other. Jesus makes it very clear. He's coming again. He's going to gather us all together. And this teaching is not something new that Jesus is coming again. It's, it's not something that, that we came up with or that, you know, later was invented to give people hope. This is actually one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified. In Matthew 26, when they're questioning Jesus, verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter... And now he quotes from Daniel again. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? 
Look now, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Jesus was aware that this was not the end, that he was going to come again and it was going to be different. But here is the sticking point. As I read this and I think about the second coming, we can't help but see that there is judgment attached to it. Right, So we, we like to talk about Jesus being born in the manger. It's cute. We reenact it. We celebrate it. It's amazing. It's powerful. We talked about that last week. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross. It's a powerful, moving experience. It causes, it transforms our life that he would love us to that point. We talk about Jesus being raised for the dead, from the dead. We celebrate that. But then we stop. We shy away from talking about Jesus coming again. So we read through the Gospels, but we skip parts like Matthew chapter 24 and 25 when he's talking about the second coming and the end of the world. We're like, oh, not that. Let's, let's skip over that. And there is this talk of judgment, and it makes us uncomfortable. But let's, let's look at it together. Let's, you know, the, the best way to overcome a fear is to uh, look at it on purpose, right? You expose yourself to it on your own accord. It's not good to force someone into a scary situation. But if you're willing to face it, it's the best way to overcome. So, so let's look at it together. Matthew 25. Open your Bibles with me. We're going to spend some time here and, and look at this thing and realize that there is nothing to be afraid of. Matthew 25, starting with verse 31, says, When the Son of Man comes, remember, in his glory, with all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, Verse 32, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set his sheep on the right hand, but his goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there is this judgment scene. A separation of people into two groups. There's only two groups. There's no in-between group. There's no undecided there's no, I'm not sure. There's no, I'm not with Jesus, but I'm not against them either. There's just two groups. And to one group, the group on the right, the sheep, he says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? From the foundation, of, from the very beginning. God planned for everyone to be saved. So if you ever wonder what you were predestined to, you were predestined for salvation. You were born to be saved. Jesus died that you might be saved. That's the plan of God for you, for everyone from the very beginning, for all of you, for all of us to be saved. That's God's plan. However, there's two groups. And before we get to the other group, I guess, let me finish out this first group. Verse 35 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, I'm going to skip down a little bit because I'm going to come back and make that point in a, in a little while. Verse 41. Then he will say, he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for whom? Did God intend for anybody, any human being, to be destroyed by that fire? No, not part of his plan. His plan, 
He created you to be saved. He created you to live forever. He created you to experience communion with him. Remember, God with us. He wants to be with you. That's the plan. However, there will be those who reject God and choose to follow the devil and his angels. And they're going to be allowed to follow them all the way to the fire that was created for the devil and his angels. It's a special fire. It's a fire that can destroy even the devil and his angels and those who choose to follow them. But that's not God's plan. God's plan, he's totally biased and he's biased towards saving you. Now, here's the thing. When we think about the second coming of Jesus, and the Bible always describes it as happening soon. Every time you read about the second coming, it's, it's happening soon. Jesus is coming soon. And so the imminence of the second coming of Jesus, it, it serves to readjust our priorities. In light of Jesus coming again, let me refocus. Let me revisit what's important, where I'm spending the bulk of my time, my, my efforts, my finances. You know, in light of eternity, in light of Jesus coming again and the world burning up, What's really important, and usually the things that come up are the same things that get mentioned. If you haven't been to a funeral in a while, maybe you've forgotten about this, but when people gather together to celebrate the life of someone who has died, usually they'll talk about the things that that person did that had the greatest impact. And you know what those things tend to be? Relationships, acts of service, things that they did to alleviate the suffering of those around them. I think when we think about the second coming of Jesus, it's the same idea. Material things burn up. The things that last forever, relationships. The things that we did for those in need. The ways that we treated one another. And, and there's this interesting thing in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? Have we done many wonders in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or wickedness. So what's going on here? What I understand from this is even though Jesus gives us this list of things that those who are on the right hand, the sheep, have done, and we're going to focus that here on a bit, they didn't do it expecting a reward. Because here we have a group. Jesus is talking about a group of people who did things in his name, expecting a reward. He says, no, I never knew you. You don't get to purchase your salvation. And this sheds light on that judgment scene. We're not saved based on our actions, yet Jesus describes actions as a way of how he separated the two groups. I want us to think through this together. It's not just about calling in the name of Jesus because there is people who have done terrible things in the name of Jesus. Spiritual abuse is a real thing. A lot of people have been hurt by people who use the name of Jesus just to control others. They use the name of Jesus to get money from people. They use the name of Jesus to get people to do what they want. They, they use the name of Jesus to, win, to have influence and power over people. We use it even for politics and other things. We should really separate those two. But Jesus says, yeah, you're using my name, but you weren't doing my will. And that doesn't count. You can say Jesus till you're blue in the faith. If you're not living the life, 
It doesn't work. You can't use it for your own personal gain. So let's look at Matthew 25. I hope you're still there. There's these two groups, these two crowds. And when Jesus separates them, he mentions actions. So it would seem like you're saved by doing good things. Well, if I, if I feed the hungry, if I clothe the naked, if I visit those in prison, then that's how I get my salvation. It seems that way after a quick reading, but I think if you pay careful attention to the text, there is evidence in there that this is not how it works. Verse 37 of Matthew 25 says the following, then the righteous will answer him. So the righteous talk back to Jesus, right? They're, they're answering him. They're replying to him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I want to highlight something here. The people who were doing the good things didn't realize that they were doing it for Jesus. Which means that they were not saved because they did those things. Because they weren't aware of it. So my understanding of this, as I read this text and I think about this, the only conclusion that I can come to is that they had Jesus in their heart and they were just living life. When you have Jesus in your heart and you see someone struggling, say, I wonder what I can do to help. You're not thinking, oh, I have to help this person so that I won't be lost. No, you, you just, it just feels like the right thing to do. They were just going through life. Living a worthwhile, a meaningful life. And they felt like a meaningful life was to help those in need. And then to their surprise, Jesus was watching all along. And he highlighted all the good things. We have to be very careful to not transform the Christian journey. As in, I have to do good things so that when Jesus comes, I get good gifts and not a lump of coal. Right? Something about that. Something about the music, Santa Claus is coming to town. It just sounds like Judgment Day. But it twists it, right? Be a good person. Be good. Somebody's watching. Otherwise, you're going to get in trouble. No, the, when I look at the Bible, it's a very different story. Jesus says, live your life true to yourself. And depending on where your heart is, that's, where, that's which group you're going to be in. If Jesus is in your heart, you can't help it. You're going to help people. Now, if you're not, if you don't have Jesus in your heart and you try to fake it, it doesn't count. It doesn't work. I believe the reason why Jesus points to the actions is because he knows our hearts, but we can't see each other's heart. So Jesus says, because you can't see it, look at the fruit. Look at their behavior. Look at how they treated others. This is evidence of their love for me. It didn't cause my love for them. It didn't cause their salvation. They're saved. They just live life as someone who is saved. And that's just a pleasant person to be around. Someone who is, goes out of their way to help, who looks for ways to help. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we think about this and we think about the second coming and we think about all these things, I think this is a great time as we're finishing the year and looking to the new year to set our priorities straight. If you don't set your priorities, somebody else will. Your boss will. Your spouse will. Your parents will. Your children, if you don't let it, your children will, will tell you exactly where you're going to spend your money, what you're going to do with your time. It, unless you set your priorities, everybody else is looking to set your priorities. You know what commercials are? 
Commercials are companies trying to tell you what to do with your money and what to do with your time and how you should live your life. I would rather turn to Jesus. Think about him coming again in the clouds, that day that I'm looking forward to when everything else is destroyed. And I think, what's the most important thing in life? And then focus on that and focus my energy, my resources, and my efforts in that. And I'm going to make mistakes. Let me tell you, I make mistakes. I'm still learning. I I have to apologize to people on a regular basis. And thank you for your patience with me. And I want to encourage you also to go ahead and make mistakes because inactivity, inaction, burying your talent, it doesn't help anybody. So I'd rather you make mistakes, but let's make them in the right direction. If I'm going to make a mistake, I want to make a mistake towards helping people. And maybe I helped someone who didn't deserve it. I want to make a mistake towards helping someone and maybe I helped them the wrong way, but at least I was trying because I have made the mistake of not helping. And I'm not proud of it. I've made the mistake of judging people and be like, I don't know, I'm not sure if this is worth it. And, and I, re- I wish I could go back and change it. So for what it's worth, let's make mistakes together in the right direction. I've, I've called people when they lost a loved one and, and then said something dumb and later kicked myself for it and later called them back and tried to apologize. And they're like, it's fine, pastor. I knew what you were trying to say. I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, people are gracious, but it's better for you to care and to at least make the phone call, make the attempt. And then you learn as you go along. Just be honest and be sincere. But in light of Jesus coming again, how do we want to live our lives? It's submission. It's, it's about helping others. There's so much pain and suffering. Can we be a part of what's good in the world? None of us can do everything. I'm not asking you to do everything. I don't expect you to be involved in every ministry. Be involved in the one that you feel like you can enjoy that you feel like there's a real felt need, that you feel like I I am equipped and gifted, I can help in this area. Help with that, and I'm happy with that. Just do something, right? We can't all do everything, but we can all do something. What is God calling you to do? What have you been through in life? Your scars, your experiences, your failures, they can actually be equipping you to reach someone that somebody else couldn't. Because you've wandered down that road, because you've, you've been through that experience, you can help somebody else who's going through it, whereas someone who's never been there couldn't. All of us are called to do something. The life of the Christian is about receiving blessings from God and then becoming a blessing for others. It's about receiving from God and sharing with others. Lord, you have given me life. You have given me health. You have given me understanding in this area. You've given me this particular skill. You've given me time, perhaps. How can I use this for your honor and glory? You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Cloverdale, that I've heard from many of you, is that people know this. And if I was talking, he's not here today, so I'll talk about him behind his back. It's okay. I had a Bible study with him yesterday, and he was sharing with me. There's a young man I'm giving Bible studies to. He didn't grow up Christian. Actually grew up Jewish. Never celebrated Christmas in his life. He's been coming to church here. We've been studying the Bible. A family from our church invited him over. He had his very first Christmas dinner celebrating the birth of Jesus. First time ever. 
And I was worried. Uh, my, my wife was working. My kids were kind of sick. And I was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? There's, there's these people and there's these families. And, and, and the church family just embraces and loves and invites people over. And I was talking with another young man that's here. He doesn't have family in the area. And says, like, yeah, somebody invited me over to their house. And we got to celebrate it. And, and I received invitations to people's houses. And I'm like, I love this church family because I don't have to micromanage anybody and tell you you have to be a good person no it's just jesus in our hearts and we look okay who can we invite over today for lunch who can we you know love on is there somebody who's going through a struggle can we help this person what can we do to help just continue to do it don't don't wait for for myself or, or pastor jason or one of the elders to tell you what you should be doing you come to god and says lord what would you have me do and then come to me and i'd love to help you do whatever god has placed in your heart that's how the thrift store started. That's how the food pantry got started. You know, that's how we have a lot of the ministries that we have going on. It's just people. God placed it in their heart, and, and then now it's, it's a thing. And it's a thing that we do. And I want to encourage you. What is God calling you to do for 2023? And I love to help you with the study of the word. With I feel like this is my, my strength, and, and I want to help with that. But beyond that, what can we do to reach the community, to help those who are in need? What are some of the things that people are experiencing? People are hurting. What can we do to alleviate their suffering as a church family, as individuals? And once again, it doesn't even have to be an official church ministry. You can do something on your own. You can partner with another ministry. But let's come together. Let's see what we can do. Jesus is coming soon. I look around at the signs. They're taking place. And I could choose to be afraid. But I choose to look forward to Jesus coming, that glorious appearing, and say, Lord, as I am waiting, what can I do? What are you calling me to do? And if you try something and it doesn't work out, that's fine. Try something different. Let's keep trying. Let's find what works. And let's move forward. Jesus is coming soon. We have this hope. It burns within our hearts. And, and we look forward to that, but we don't look forward to it idly waiting. We don't say, Jesus is coming. Let me head for the hills. No, Jesus is coming. How can I serve? What can I do for the benefit of those around me? We're Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus is coming soon. And we look forward to that day. Let us not be idle as Jesus comes. But Lord, let us be busy doing the work that he has left us to do. And Lord, thank you because you empower us and you encourage us and you work in us and through us for the benefit of those around us. So Lord, yes, things will get scary towards the end. It will not be pretty. But Lord, when everybody's panicking and when people are suffering, may your children, may we be busy going around helping those that we can. According to the gifts you've given us, may we put them to work, Lord, for the benefit of others. May we reach people with the good news that there is salvation in Jesus as a free gift. And may we live lives in such a way, Lord, that our actions will demonstrate where our heart is. So may you live in our hearts and may you cause us to live our lives just like Jesus lived it while he was here on earth. May we live for your honor and glory to bring alleviation to the suffering of those around us. Father, bless us and make us a blessing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.